in the book Trust and Betrayal in the Workplace, there's a survey there that states that 13% of employees distrust their employers to be fair and honest. Virtually no combination of perks and benefits counts for much unless the worker can feel he can trust his employer. Dennis and Michelle Reyna, authors of this book, say that it's the small gestures that often matter the most. Behavior such as respecting others, sharing information, admitting mistakes, giving constructive feedback, keeping secrets, avoiding gossip and backbiting, being consistent and involving others in decision-making, build and retain trust. It actually sounds biblical, doesn't it? Trust reduces turnover, improves performance, and enhances profits. In fact, companies where employees trust top executives posted shareholder returns of 42% higher than companies where distrust ruled the company culture. While this is in the corporate setting, in the same way in family units, in the church family, amongst close friends, trust is unfortunately lacking because of experiences that have burned both sides or the character of the people involved are such that it's very hard to trust them. And this sort of distrust that permeate these relationships cause much dysfunction, friction, division, disruption, and general messiness in life. This deep-seated distrust can be caused when you find out that your children lie to you often, or you catch your spouse with someone else, or a close friend stabs you in the back, or promises that were made are broken, and often constantly broken, and the list goes on and on for how a relationship loses its trust. And often when we so desire to give our friends or our family another chance because we are so kind and gracious, we are willing to give people chance after chance. We forgive them, hoping for the best, and they themselves promise that they will change. But it is of no use because they still break our trust in our hearts. And because that happens, the seeds of distrust start to take hold, and soon strains and divisions amongst friends and in your families firmly take hold. How can we turn distrust into trust with God's help in a relationship? How do we find redemption and restoration when families and friendships have been torn apart? How do we reconcile relationships in the homes. That's what we want to take a look at as we continue our sermon series entitled Home. And specifically, we want to take a look at overcoming distrust. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 31. We pick off where we left off last week. And so we're going to be studying Genesis chapter 31 verses 19 to 55. When we left last week, Jacob and his family were ready to leave Laban with their possessions. And if you remember, there is a deep distrust between Jacob and Laban. What started off as a very warm relationship between uncle and nephew soon fell apart as 
they both schemed as individuals. They tried to take advantage of one another. The Bible seemingly places the emphasis of blame upon Uncle Laban as the instigator, having started all of it by tricking Jacob into marrying Leah instead of Rachel and getting someone to work an extra seven years for him for free. Whatever the case, their relationship was at a point where both were deeply distrustful of each other, which resulted in actions that would further cause distrust between the two. But how does God take two distrustful people and cause them to trust one another again? And what is God's role in this process? Let's take a look. So hopefully, if you are in a relationship where there's deep distrust, you can find hope that you can trust again. Look at verses 19 to 21 with me of Genesis chapter 31. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's. And Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. As we pick up the story, on a day when Laban was preoccupied with shearing the sheep, the Bible tells us two things happened. Rachel stole the household idols that belonged to her father, and Jacob did not tell Laban that he was taking off. He was said to have stolen away. Now we know that Laban wanted to keep Jacob with him because of the blessings that the Lord brought upon the house of Laban on account of Jacob. Now it wasn't like Jacob was a prisoner. He could leave whenever he wanted. And out of courtesy, he probably should have informed Laban. But he didn't, as we're going to find out, because Jacob didn't trust the scheming Laban. Rachel, on the other hand, stole the household idols, the family gods. The word is teraphims. Now, why would Rachel steal them? Some have said that the teraphims, or the household idols, were significant to Rachel because they represented uh, inheritance claim. And historically, there's evidence for this. The person that held on to the household gods had a claim in the inheritance. And as we mentioned last week, Laban was so cunning that he had somehow used up or taken the inheritance that was allotted to Rachel and Leah. And perhaps Rachel now wanted to stake her claim in the family fortune. Still others say that Rachel's spiritual life was not strong and perhaps did not fully trust in the living God, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so she still held on to her pagan beliefs at that time and therefore took the teraphims. Now, interestingly, the Bible does not provide commentary as to the motive of Rachel's act. The emphasis is that she stole them, and of course it is wrong. But in the narrative, her stealing is mentioned because it adds to the distrust between Jacob and Laban. Now let me stop here and note a principle about distrust. Number one, distrust sometimes leads to foolish actions. Distrust sometimes leads to foolish actions. If you don't trust someone, you think the worst of them. There isn't a middle ground, right? Either you trust them or you can't trust them. And if you can't trust them, it causes you to do things that may be foolish in nature. 
Of course, sometimes there is a healthy distrust which will protect you from getting scammed or fooled. I'm not talking about those cases. I'm generally talking about the principle of when two people distrust one another so much, they will take actions that seem foolish or simply foolish. I remember many years ago, I was preaching in the U.S. and was staying in someone's home. I just flown in from Asia, and the host said to me, Pastor Steve, because you have jet lag, you will probably wake up very early tomorrow morning. We may not be up yet, but feel free to raid the refrigerator and take whatever you want to eat. Our home is your home. Well, sure enough, the next morning I woke up early, and I was hungry, and so I I went to the refrigerator, and I opened it, and to my surprise, every food item had a name on it. It was labeled with the name of one of the family members. So I wasn't sure which food I could take. My name certainly wasn't on any of the food. And so when the host woke up and were preparing to eat their breakfast, they asked me, Pastor Steve, have you eaten anything? I I told them no. And they said, why not? Were you not hungry? I said I was, but when I went to the refrigerator and opened it, I saw that every food had someone's name on it. So I wasn't sure which food I could take. The host said, oh, so sorry, we forgot to tell you that we as a family put names on our food so that no one else will eat it but the person that the food belongs to. You see, we don't trust each other in our family. But we trust you so you can eat whatever you want. I chuckle when I remember that story. Imagine a family that is so distrusting that they must have names on each of their food items. Well, Jacob didn't trust Laban, and he thought maybe Laban would do something to him or use some tactics that he has already employed that would cause him not to be able to leave or to prevent him from leaving with his possessions, and so he had to sneak away. Now, Rachel, if her purpose was to stake claim to a part of Laban's inheritance, stole the idols because she could not trust her own father to give her her fair share. Or her lack of trust in Yahweh, the living God, at that point caused her to have a backup plan to continue to hold on to her pagan religion and therefore take the household idols. Whatever the case, distrust led them to take foolish actions. Look at verse 22 to 24. And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. And he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey. And he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Of course, Laban finds out that Jacob and his family is taken off. And even though with the three days' head start, catches up with catches up with Jacob's slow traveling group. On the seventh day, they catch up near the mountains of Gilead. And for sure, Laban must have been mad and angry. But the Lord intervenes and warns Laban to be careful. Laban, don't do anything rash. Hold your anger. Be careful how you treat Jacob. Leave him alone. Don't mess with him. Don't touch him. I've warned you. Both of you don't trust each other, so don't do anything foolish. 
The God who created us knows that we will often resort to foolish actions when we deeply distrust one another. Perhaps a foolish action on the part of Laban would ratchet up the distrust even more. So the Lord intervenes to warn him to tone it down. Look at verses 25 to 28. So Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched in the mountains of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword? Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with trimble and harp. And you did not allow me to kiss my sons and my daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. Laban himself recognizes that when there is distrust, foolish actions are taken. That's what he says in verse 28. When they meet, Laban talks first and expresses what he considers are facts to him. But in reality, they are assumptions, they are accusations. First, he wonders why Jacob fled without so much as a goodbye. He assumes and accuses Jacob of being like a thief taking away his daughters against their wishes as someone who kidnaps another against their will at at knife point. Look at the accusation in verse 26. Jacob, why did you steal my daughters away? They didn't want to go with you. And yet you took them away as if by knife point. That's a major assumption on the part of Laban. A deep accusation. Now we know from last week that the real reason both Leah and Rachel willingly left Laban is because they knew of their father's cunning reputation. There is another implied assumption on the part of Jacob. Laban says, don't you know that I would have given you a a huge going away party with lots of music? And Jacob assumes, no way. After you tricked me these many times, changing my wages ten times, Jacob assumes that there was not going to be any happy going away goodbye parties. And that's why he sneaks off. That is also an assumption on Jacob's part. There's a third assumption on the part of Laban that Jacob is going back home because he is homesick after having left for 20 years. Now, if you remember from the beginning of this chapter, the reason why Jacob wants to go back is because he sees the faces of his cousins He sees in their face a growing tension, a growing jealousy of his increasing wealth at the expense of their father, Laban. And of course, God tells Jacob it's time to go back home, but Laban assumes it's homesickness. But let me stop here and note the second principle of distrust, number two. Distrust often leads to false accusations and assumptions. Distrust often leads to false accusations and assumptions. Now, it's easy to falsely accuse someone, especially when you do not trust them. It's easy to make up a story and have everyone believe it, especially if everyone believes that that person's character and their reputation is already tarnished. 
It's very easy when everyone dislikes and distrusts someone for you to lob an accusation and everyone believes it as truth. Take, for example, a teacher. Let's say you are a teacher and you are grading papers during this time of transition to online school, virtual classes. And you have a student who's mediocre at best and has never gotten a hundred all year, especially in his first and second grading, suddenly is thriving under home study. Suddenly all of his papers are 100s. What will you assume? Most teachers, I believe, will assume that this student is cheating. Right? We distrust someone who suddenly thrives and does well. We, we don't know. It's a fair assumption, perhaps. But that's where we naturally go to. Or someone perhaps who has a very checkered past. And they've gone through true life change. But somehow the old accusations are always brought up against him or her. It's very difficult to shake that. Because when you already distrust someone, especially because of the reputation, then it's very easy to lob accusations and assumptions about them. I remember the story of the late Bishop Potter of New York of a generation past. He was sailing to Europe on one of the great transatlantic ocean liners. When he got on board, to his surprise, he found out that he would have to share a cabin with someone else. And the ocean liner was full. After going to see his accommodations and meeting his cabin mate, he came to the ship's purser desk and asked if he could leave his gold watch and other valuables in the ship's safe. The bishop explained that ordinarily he never availed himself of that privilege, but he had been to the cabin and had met the man who would occupy the same berth with him. And judging from his appearance, he was afraid that his cabin mate might not be a very trustworthy person. The ship's purser accepted the responsibility of caring for the bishop's valuables and remarked, It's all right, bishop. I would be very happy to take care of these things for you. In fact, your cabin mate was also here earlier and left his valuables for the same reason when he saw you. Now just think about that. Verse 29. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Laban tells Jacob very clearly that he had the power. He was in a position of power to harm Jacob, but God had intervened. God had appeared to him and reminded him to be careful in how he treated Jacob. This shows you the danger of of false accusations and false assumptions caused by mistrust. Because if you have power, you may do something in your distrust, in your assumptions, in your accusations that will cause you to regret your actions. Go back and see principle number one about foolish acts. That's why we do not make assumptions, even in your deep distrust, especially if you are in power. If God had not intervened, and spoke into Laban. Who knows what Laban would have done in his anger of having to chase down Jacob. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your 
father's house, but why did you steal my gods? And here's a fourth assumption, an accusation, that it was Jacob who stole the family idols. Now, there's no evidence or proof, but that's the accusation. Now, we all know that Rachel did it, but Laban and Jacob were unaware of this fact. But what we have is a wrong assumption here. Verse 31 to 32. Then Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I said, Perhaps you would take your daughters from me by force. With whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. In the presence of our brethren, identify what I have of yours and take it with you. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Jacob answered and told Laban he was afraid. That's why he left. He was afraid that a man with lots of power could take everything from him, including his family. He would have left empty-handed, and that's why he ran. Of course, this is the fifth assumption that's noted in these verses, this time on the part of Jacob. Jacob simply assumes, because he so distrusts Laban, that Laban would have let him go, but would not have allowed him to take anything. Then Jacob offers that if Laban is to find someone, whoever from his party who stole the family idols, Laban could kill them. Go search Laban. If you find someone who stole your things, you can kill them. Sixth assumption here. Jacob assumes it it could not be Rachel or anyone he loved or cared for, that he would be willing to offer up the life of anyone who may have stolen it He assumes it's a male. Do not let him live. You see, you see principle one and two working together. Assumptions and accusations will lead to foolish actions if it is steeped in distrust. Imagine what would happen if Laban found out it was Rachel who stole the idols. Jacob, in his assumptions, has offered his wife up to die. That's what happens. Distrust leads to false assumptions and false accusations. Look at verses 33 to 35 with me. And Laban went into Jacob's tent, into Leah's tent, into the two maids' tents, but he did not find them. Then he went out to Leah's tent and entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household idols, put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. And Laban searched all about the tent, but did not find them. She said to her father, Let it not displease my Lord that I cannot rise before you, for the manner of woman is with me. And he searched, but did not find the household idols. Laban carefully searches for the idols. You can see that that is what is important to him. It wasn't the fact that he missed his daughters and his grandchildren, that he chased down Jacob. He was chasing down Jacob because he wanted the idols. He's unable to find it because Rachel has hidden it in the saddle of her camel. She is sitting on top of it. She tells her father she's unable to get up to allow him to search her camel's saddle because of a woman's monthly issue. And he does not force her to get up, and so he is unable to find the idols. Rachel is so deeply distrustful of her father that she doesn't trust his love and mercy to allow her to live if the idols are found to be with her. 
And so she deceives Laban, her father, and outright lies. You see, if you think ill of someone, and you don't trust them, and you don't trust their motives, it will lead you to use deception. And that's our third principle. Distrust sometimes leads to deception. Distrust sometimes leads to deception. Family members and close friends who have developed a deep distrust for each other will often play the deception game. If I don't trust you with money, I will lie to you and tell you I don't have money to give you. All right? Isn't that true? If I don't trust you with responsibilities, I will tell you and deceive you and tell you it's already done. I I don't need you. But we simply distrust them. If I don't trust you in our relationship, I will make excuses in my own mind or perhaps publicly employing someone else to spy on you, to entrap you, to hover over you and follow you around. If I don't trust that you can keep a secret, I will lie to you and tell you I don't know or I intentionally leave you out in the discussions. You see, when there's deep distrust, what comes along with it is deceptive acts. These deceptions only lead to deeper distrust when the other person often finds out. Distrust leads to greater distrust. It is a deadly cycle. Distrust leads to deception. Deception leads to distrust. And that's why often amongst families and friends, especially in families where you can't get rid of your family, the seeds of distrust run for generations, if not for a lifetime. It's a deadly cycle. But how do we enter into a process of restoration? How do we overcome distrust? Let's take a look. Verses 36 to 37. Then Jacob was angry and rebuked Laban. And Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my trespass? What is my sin that you have so hotly pursued me? Although you have searched all my things, what part of your household things have you found? Sit it here before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. Now, Jacob is livid. He's angry for being accused of stealing the idols without evidence. So it's his turn to challenge Laban. He said, did you find anything of yours that I have taken or my people have taken? Put it out here. Prove your accusations. I'm innocent until proven guilty. And Jacob is asking Laban to to do away with the assumptions and the accusations. Speak the truth. Did you find anything? If there is no evidence, then why do you accuse me of taking it? Jacob continues, verse 38 to 40. These 20 years... I've been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried their young. And I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. In the day the drought consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep departed from my eyes. Jacob begins to set the record straight. He says to Laban, I've been with you 20 years. 
In those 20 years, I've done nothing wrong. I have not wrongly taken anything from you. In fact, if you suffered loss in your flock because a wild animal ate it, I took the loss. I replaced one of your sheep, one of your goats, one of your lambs with one of my own. Laban, I have never taken anything from you that rightly belongs to you. Verse 41. Thus, I have been in your house 20 years. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. Here it is, Laban. Let me set the record straight and tell the truth. I have faithfully served you 20 years, 14 for your daughters, 6 for your flocks. Everything that I have right now is rightfully mine. And you repay me by changing my wages 10 times. To our surprise, Laban does not stop this conversation to deny any of it. It's truth. Now while this seems to be a very harsh reply, I believe it is important for Jacob to speak the truth. Set the record straight. First time, man to man, to bring forth what is on his heart. Because number one, this is how you overcome distrust. You speak the truth and you set the record straight. Speak the truth and set the record straight. No more assumptions, no more accusations. Because my friends, you don't overcome distrust by dancing around the issue, by beating around the bush, you get to the root issue as to why there is distrust. You have to tell the other person, this is why I don't trust you. This is what happened. This is how you've broken the promise. This is why we don't trust each other. Let's get to the root of the issue. Jacob says, how can I trust you when you have changed my wages ten times? You may distrust me, but I never took anything from you. I'm just setting the record straight, telling you the truth. And I've always replaced your loss with my own. You see, the only way to regain trust and to overcome distrust between two family members, two friends who distrust each other is to speak the truth. The Bible tells us the truth will set us free to set the record straight, to admit a mistake if it has been made. That's why they teach you in Counseling 101 that the first step in reconciliation is to admit that you have done wrong. The first step is to come together and tell the truth. Admit the truth. If wrong has been done, admit the wrong. Right? So it is in salvation. We first admit that we are a sinner. We admit that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We admit that we can't save ourselves and that we are in need of a Savior. If you are aware of any recovery groups or recovery programs like Celebrate Recovery or Alcoholics Anonymous, you will know that the first things that someone who goes through this program is told to do is to admit. Right? To go around and say your name and admit that you are an alcoholic, that you are addicted to pornography to admit to your spouse that you have a pornographic addiction, to admit to your mate that you have been unfaithful, to acknowledge to your family that you have a gambling problem, or, or whatever it is. To overcome distrust, you need 
to tell the truth, to speak the truth, and to set the record straight. If you have a problem, if you've made a mistake, you've got to put it all on the table. It's very hard to do, but that's how you regain trust. You must speak truth. Verse 42. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me, Surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob acknowledged that Yahweh was watching all of this. God himself has revealed it to Jacob and to Laban that he's watching. And he's the one who has been protecting Jacob from Laban's sinister, cunning work. And what Jacob has accumulated is his God protected Jacob by speaking to Laban to warn him, don't do anything foolish. Leave Jacob alone. Even though Laban was probably very angry. Verse 43. And Laban answered and said to Jacob, these daughters are my daughters and these children are my children and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they have born. Laban's response is, is a bit hilarious. He says, everything is still mine. Everything is mine. He totally disregards that Jacob has rightfully worked 20 years for family and flock. That was part of the deal. Laban is showing himself as a man who is not to be trusted. How do you trust a man like Laban who still claims that all is his? Well, you need a third person. You need a mediator. You need a guarantor to kind of hold each other at bay, to keep each other accountable. Who would serve in this role that both parties would agree to? Look at verses 44 to 49. Now therefore come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Then Jacob said to his brethren, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there on the heap. Laban called it Jagar Shadutha, And Jacob called it Galid. And Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, its name was called Galid. Also Mitzpah, because he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent one from another. Jacob and Laban enter into a covenant, a promise, to keep away from each other, to leave each other alone. And they set up a, a pillar, a heap of stone, that would remind them of this covenant, this promise, this agreement. This was very common in the ancient Near East where they would build a monument, a, a pile of stone, to remind each party of the promise that had been made. The third person that would bridge the trust is God. God would be the witness. God would be the guarantor that both parties could be trusted. Right? Jacob didn't trust Laban. Laban didn't trust Jacob. They needed to trust a common person so that they could trust one another. And they said, may God be the one who watches over us. Now, Jacob already trusted God, who has helped him through his time with Laban over these 20 years. He says that in verse 42. And Laban was seemingly moved by God's appearance to him in a vision. And so both of them agreed 
that God would serve as the witness. Listen carefully. It wasn't the promise. It wasn't a pile of stone that would serve as a witness. It would be God that would serve as a witness so that each of them could move on with life to make amends, to overcome their distrust, and to walk away. You see, oftentimes in life, we tell each other, even as Christians, trust one another, forgive. You can still trust, but we're so wary. We, we've been burned so many times. How can we trust? We can't. It's, it's actually very difficult. But we can do so when we are reminded that God is watching and God Himself will serve as the witness. He will stand in place to make sure that both sides are dealing with each other in a trustworthy manner. The names of these places that Laban and Jacob call this place literally means witness pile. Jegar, Shadutha, and Galid means witness pile. In fact, there's a third name, Mitzpah, watchtower. God is watching over two untrusting people. You see, to overcome our distrust, number two, we need to appoint God to serve as witness. Appoint God to serve as witness. It's a good reminder for family and friends that we can overcome our distrust for one another if we ask God to serve as witness. Let he who sees all things be the one who deals with each person who breaks the promise or the covenant. That's how we can trust again. If we never let go of our distrust and trust in a God who serves as witness because He sees all, then it's very difficult to mend our relationships. We can't be everywhere. We can't be at all places all the time. We can't always be with our spouses. We can't always be with our children. We can't always be with our relatives. We can't always be with our friends. And sometimes when they're not with us, doubts creep into our mind and we begin to distrust because we think of the past. But when we recognize that God can be appointed to serve as witness, it's not only something that makes our heart feel good. It's not a coping mechanism. It is truth. Because the one who sees all, the one who is the guarantor, will deal with the person who breaks our trust. That's what verse 50 says. Look, Laban continues, If you afflict my daughters, or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban hammers his exact point. Jacob, you are not to take any other wives outside of my daughters to ensure that my daughters are taken care of. But how can I do that when you're heading back home to Canaan and I live in Padam Aram? How is Laban going to check up on him? They can't Skype call each other. They can't have a Zoom conference call. It's weeks of journeying. Laban says, I can't do it. But God will be my witness. Even though no one sees, that's what he says right in verse 50, even though no one sees, I will trust you because I trust God who serves as witness. 
My friends, if you find it hard to trust someone else, allow God to serve as your witness so that you can reconcile or else you will find it very difficult to trust again. For a spouse that has been hurt, for a parent to trust their children again, for children to trust parents again, God will have to be the witness. And we allow Him to catch if promises are broken and allow Him to deal with it. It's the same way in saving faith, right? We trust in Jesus Christ alone. No one else as our personal Savior because we distrust the world. Everyone in the world is peddling a life or a lifestyle that says, this is a life that's worth living. And yet the world breaks its promises. It doesn't provide the joy. It doesn't provide the success. It doesn't provide the satisfaction of heart. It doesn't provide hope. But God says, there is only one who you can really trust. And that is me. I will serve as the guarantor, the witness. I will never fail you. Why? Because I sent my own son, Jesus Christ, to die on your behalf. You can trust in me alone. If you think about it, my friends, in this world, even in the closest relationships you have with one another, you will be disappointed because they will break your trust. There is only one whose love is so deep, whose power is so great, that he can guarantee his own promises. And that's why we place in Christ our trust in him alone. How do we overcome distrust? We appoint God because he can and he watches all to serve as our witness. Verse 51 and 52. Then Laban said to Jacob, here is this heap and here is this pillar which I place between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not pass beyond this heap to you and you will not pass beyond this heap and this pillar to me for harm. You know, further, it's interesting that Laban sets a literal boundary that they promise to each other not to cross so that they cannot harm one another. Yes, God is their witness, but it's also important to set healthy boundaries. That's number three. To overcoming distrust, number three, set healthy boundaries. And that's good practice for us today. That's the practical aspect of these spiritual truths. People who have trust issues need to set boundaries so that they will not be hurt again or that they will not fall into temptation. Right? If you've got a gambling problem, you set the boundary that says, I will not ever step foot into a casino again. That's for me so that I won't fall into temptation. And that's for people who have placed their trust in me when they've forgiven me. Or you have strayed from your marriage. You set boundaries that say, I will never meet alone with someone of the opposite gender. Or I will always travel with my spouse so that I will avoid temptation, so that there will be no accusations against me because I've already messed up and I don't want to break the trust of someone who has forgiven me. Set healthy boundaries. Verses 53 to 55. 
the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judged between us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his brethren to eat bread. And they ate bread and stayed all night on the mountain. And early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. Jacob agreed to Laban's proposal for setting this boundary. And they sealed the covenant by offering a sacrifice and eating a meal together. Next morning they said their goodbyes and Jacob is now on his way back home to Canaan. With God as witness, with truth spoken, and with proper boundaries, there can be trust again. Two people who deeply distrusted each other were able to come to an agreement to make good because they both trusted God. The Bible tells us in verse 53, they swore by His name. They didn't trust each other. They trusted in a God who could be trusted to ensure that each one would hold up to their end of the bargain. We can trust others. We can overcome distrust. Not because the other person is trustworthy, but because the God who works in hearts, the God who sees all, the God who loves us unconditionally, He alone is trustworthy. I don't know what you're going through in your family life or amongst your close friends. I don't know if you have been burned in the past, if you have trust issues. I don't know if you find it very difficult to overcome your distrust for people. And I'm sorry whatever you've gone through. But in Christ, there is hope for reconciliation. In our Heavenly Father, there is hope for redemption in these relationships. Your family can come together again. Your friendships can be mended because we trust in a God who is fully trustworthy. May God work in your heart. May the Holy Spirit do the work of conviction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for this example of Laban and Jacob and showing how two people who greatly distrusted each other are able to come together because you serve as their witness. Truth has been spoken and healthy boundaries have been set. You give for us a wonderful pathway in restoring and mending relationships that have been broken because of trusts that have been broken. May the Holy Spirit continue to do a work in our heart so that we continue to lay before you all of our problems and all of our issues. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that you alone can work in hearts and mend our families and friendships. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.